So we are at the end. I'm going to go over what five chapters of the book of Job. Job. Very good. So find that book and get to the end. We're going to wrap this story up. So Job has been very interesting to me this time. Um, every time we go through a book, you know, I pick it because I think I know what it's talking about, and then I get to studying it, and it just blows my mind, you know, every time. And and this has been no exception to that. The the, the narrative, the poetry, all of it has just been fascinating um, as we walk through. So I didn't put a recap section in your outline because when I typed all of this out, it ended up being two whole pages, and I decided that was probably a bad idea. So I deleted that section, and uh, we'll just kind of walk through, make sure we're all on the same page what's been going on with the book of Job. So if you've missed the entire study, this will be useful for you um, as we, we get to the end. And I know some of you were here for the first time last week. And so just one more recap before we finish what's going on in the book. So of course, Job is one of the oldest stories in your Bible. I mean, obviously apart from creation and things like that. But as far as stories go, this, this gets us into the early chapters of the book of Genesis timing. And it's a story about a man who is very righteous. Now, if you remember, what, what kind of righteousness did Job portray in his life? Well, it's, it's certainly genuine. It's righteousness in that he doesn't do wrong things. What we saw was it was fuller than that when he starts describing his way of life. What else does he do? He does, he does the right. So he, he does right things. And not only that, not, so he's not just not doing anything on the list. He's doing all the positive commandments. But he's, I'd say even a step further than that, he kind of functions as the local hero. He's the guy, if there's injustice in town, he's the, the cowboy who rolls up in and, and means business. You follow what I'm saying? This, this is Job. He's respected in his community. Even God sets him forward as a man who is blameless and upright. Of course, we get the scenario at the very beginning of the book, and God presents Job as righteous, upright, blameless to what individual? Satan. To Satan, to the accuser. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Of course, Satan responds with what? What was his accusation? He's only faithful because um, you have a, because you have a very, you, because you protect him. Yes. So, Abby said, Job is only faithful to you, so Satan's speaking, Job is only faithful to you, God, because you've blessed him. Or the word the, the word there is a hedge. You've put a hedge of protection around this man. That's the only reason he blesses your name. Remove that. Let's see what he does. So God agrees to the challenge and removes the hedge. Doesn't remove it technically. What's he do to it? Shrinks it down, so shrinks it down to his body. He can't touch his body. He can touch everything else. So over the course of that day, he loses his... His possessions, loses his servants, loses his children, ten of them. He, he was left three servants, because that's one for each disaster to stay alive, to report back. And he didn't lose his wife. And uh, that's all he's got left. And how's he respond? What's his famous biblical statement in response to the suffering? Yes, I heard in several translations, <laughs> but, but the idea is the Lord gives... The Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the accusation was, he'll curse you. But what does Job do instead? He blesses the name of the Lord, the opposite of a curse. So he blesses the name of the Lord. Then same scenario happens. Satan says, you got to make that head smaller. And he makes it so small that the only thing that Satan can't do now to Job is kill him. Anything else is on the table. Job gets so sick, bodily ailments, 
It's, it's just a grotesque picture. There's no comparable modern disease. It's just the idea that everything that could be wrong with Job is wrong with Job, except he's staying alive. And then his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And his response, remember what he calls her? Yeah, that's, that's, that's how a fool talks, because uh, a fool curses God. Or instead, he asks a question. Are we to receive good from the Lord and not receive evil? What's Job showing when he says this? What's the, the word in the book that's being emphasized here? He's holding fast to his integrity. And integrity, maybe, I like to use a different word in modern English. Instead of integrity, I like to say loyalty. His loyalty to the Lord is intact. He honors the Lord. God is God. He doesn't have any idea what God is doing. And at this point, he's, he's still pretty amicable in his relationship with God. But uh, it won't stay that way. But he, he's loyal to God. He's on God's side. Or he's submissive to God is maybe the right way to say it. His friends show up. They start um, hanging out with him for a week. And then finally, he speaks up. And what does Job do after this time has passed and he's going to speak his mind now his friends are listen, listening Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar they're hanging out. What does Job say? What's the summary basic statement of that whole Job chapter 3? Better off dead. Yeah. Yeah. Better off dead. Or curse the day that I came into this world. Scratch it off your calendar. Or better let leave it on your calendar and let's make that the day of suffering. On that day, let's have storm clouds. Let's have the hurricane come in and wipe everybody out on that day. That's Let's put Katrina on that day. Let's put 9-11 on that day. Let's, let's make that just the special day of the year, Job's birthday, for the day everything terrible is supposed to happen. So what's, what's Job saying in all of this? What's his attitude? <laughs> Pity me. Pity me is not, not bad. He even kind of ends with that in one of his dialogues. Like, God, you're going to look up one day and I'm going to be gone. You'll miss me, aren't you? It's like you, you expect your, your toddler to say something like that. you know. So, but this is, this is Job. Now, what happens in Job's life at this point? He never at any point denies God's sovereign power and authority. He stays humble and submissive to God from beginning to end. There's no doubt in Job's mind that God is God. There is no other. There's no contest. Even he's not God. God is God. Nobody else is God. God can do what he wants. However, Job says... I've done nothing wrong. Now, we know Job is correct in saying that. That's directly stated more than once in the book of Job. And he makes this conclusion. So God is God. I've done nothing wrong. Therefore, God is not treating me right. This is accusation. God's not treating me justly. Now, you know, this is going to turn out to be a the, the one area in Job's life where he's not showing Faithfulness. So what, what's he not showing by saying, God's treating me wrong? What's, what's the root problem here? Not trusting God. I love the word trust. He, he just doesn't trust God's plan. He doesn't trust what God's doing. He's, he's loyal to him in the, okay, you're God. I'll submit to you. I don't trust what you're doing in this. So we have this series of dialogues. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all of them have the same statement. No matter how you look at it, they're all just really saying the same thing. And what, did, what are they saying? You did something wrong. Right? God works in a completely retributive justice mindset. So if you experience any evil in your life at all, any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, there is a direct 
linear cause and effect relationship between that suffering and a specific sin in your life. If you have a cold today, you did something yesterday and God has cursed you with a cold. If you have a headache, there's a sin you need to repent of. If someone in your family dies, either they sinned or you did. Like someone has caused this because God exclusively, universally operates in a just way. That, so therefore, Job, you're suffering. Dude, you must have done something bad. Because look at how bad he's suffering. So Job is going to continue over and over and over again. I'm, I'm innocent. You know, if I, in fact, if I did something, why don't you just tell me what that thing was? And eventually the friends start making up things that could be that. And they go back and forth. Job just keeps saying, nope, I'm innocent. One day God's going to vindicate me. If he's just, he's going to have to. And we have that moment of clarity where he says, one, my Redeemer lives. And I know even after this flesh rots, yet in my flesh, he's going to vindicate me. And it's like, man, if that had just persisted for the rest of the book, Job's attitude would have been good. But it's a roller coaster. You've experienced grief or depression or anxiety of some kind. And it's, it's rarely just this consistent thing. It's, it's good for today, and then it's bad for a few days. And it's a little better for a few days, and it's up and down. It, it, it wavers. Job experiences the same thing. But the, the cycle with the friends ends abruptly with Bildad. Bildad makes his comment, and Job 28, who remembers the summary of Bildad's comment? It's only like four verses long. You're a maggot. Job, you're just a maggot. Well, at that point, we've condescended in this dialogue to pointless communicate. You ever get the name calling in an argument? From that point forward, how well does that argument tend to go? You gave up reason. You gave up hope. All right, now you're wasting your time. And so Job goes on his rant after this. And so the friends, those friends, don't speak again. Job defends himself. And if you remember that one, Job, this is where we get an account of his righteousness and just how good he was. And you can really feel his misery. He's like, I was, I'm in town. And this guy's parents, I like, I rescued them. I was the savior in that town. Or that was the worthless fellow. And now I go into town and that kid's son, who's also a worthless fellow, laughs at me and is just glad he doesn't have it as bad as I do. You just feel the agony in his life, his transition from top of the social hierarchy to the bottom. And he finally ends, basically, when his, he, instead of talking to the friends, his conversation gradually shifts what direction? That shifts upward, right? He's, he's like, well, God, if, if I had done any of those things these guys are saying, this this would make sense. And he, he say, I don't remember exactly what verse, but he, he makes the statement, I've, I've made my defense and I have signed my name. Why don't you read this and give me an answer? And then he ends the very last part by saying, I, I want to walk into God's throne room like a prince. How's a prince going to a throne room? His, his head's up, right? He's not a servant coming in there hoping he's not smote. He, he comes in. We need to talk. That's how his attitude ends. He's pointing the finger at God. He's, he's still, God's the one sitting on that throne. That's the courtroom he wants to go to. But he, he's going to have it out with God. Then, as soon as he finishes that statement, this young whippersnapper shows up, Elihu. And we spent a lot of time talking about Elihu last week. And there's this Elihu... Is he just one of the friends, or is he kind of this messenger from God? Do you remember where we landed? Where you landed? <laughs> where I landed. <laughs> that was a subtle. I like yeah, 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 there you go. All right, I, and where, where I landed in that, that message was Elihu is kind of, yeah. There's thing, he makes some of the same mistakes the friends do, 
But at the same time, he brought some legitimately new information to the story. Maybe God allows suffering to mold your character. Maybe God uses suffering in, in a way other than just strict retributive justice. Well, that's true. He got that part right. And then he spends the last two chapters talking about the majesty of God over creation, which actually leads us directly into how God himself responds. So we end up just by saying Elihu's probably the good guy in the story, though he does things wrong. God uses a lot of broken people to do good things. Job's not a perfect character either, but he's the one vindicated in the end. And I think Elihu's much in the same position as that. So now God is going to show up in chapter 38. And let's see if we can wrap up the book of Job. So I've divided this into the speeches and responses. So the Lord's going to show up and speak, then Job will respond. The Lord will speak, Job will respond, and then we get a final little dialogue or narrative about what happens in the end. Now what's most interesting here is Elihu specifically said, God's not going to answer that kind of cry. If you're crying out for justice and you're pointing the finger at the Almighty and saying, you answer me, God's not going to show up and talk to you. <laughs> but what's he doing in chapter 38? <laughs> He shows up. He comes. He he loves Job. Job is his faithful. I mean, if Job was going to brag on any person that was his servant, who was it going to be? We already know. It was Job. God really likes this guy. So verse chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. Now, what's a whirlwind? I think it's a tornado. That's kind of symbolic of uh, Job's life. Really, for this whole, and the cyclical nature of the dialogue, I think all of this kind of visual imagery works together. God's answering, yeah, kind of in the cycle of that dialogue, but now God's going to manifest in this visual way as that cyclone, as that whirlwind, and now he's going to speak to Job. And so we'll, we'll, we won't read everything, but we'll hit some of the highlights here. It says, so who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. All right, so what's going to happen to Job? We're going to have a pop quiz. And so the pop quiz here, Job's not going to, at any point, know the answer, or even be capable of knowing the answer. And just, just read this first paragraph. We'll see the kinds of questions that are going to come. He says, where were you... When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Well, what's God referring to here when he laid the foundation of the earth? It's creation. And if you think about it, you know your six days of creation. Um, on what day, I wish I had six fingers, this would have been convenient. On what day does man get created? The six. This is the last one. So where was any man when God laid the foundations of the earth? Not a single one, let alone, where's Job? Job ain't anywhere, anywhere, even hopefully near, being around. What's God getting at? Have you ever had an argument with someone where instead of necessarily addressing their concerns head on, you just outflank them? You know what it means to outflank? And I guess it's a war terminology, right? So, so you got an army... They want to attack you, and you just come out. They've got 10,000 troops, and so you're like, okay, I'm going to roll my million troops out into the battlefield, and let's just, you still want to go through with this? 
You get the idea. Just, that's outflanking. So God's just like, do you want to have this conversation, Job? You want to talk about who's governing the universe and, and how they're governing the universe? Number one, who made it? You don't have any idea. Look at verse 8. Or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be set. Now, what's that a reference to? It's the boundaries of the ocean. Who determined, Job... Where the boundary was going to be. Do you have any input on that? Do you have any idea how that cycle works? Do you have any clue whatsoever what went into creation? Now we're going to see. Let's go ahead and fill in a few blanks here. So what God is doing in this whole section. So this is 38 through 40, verse 2. Um, God is just showing that he's the sovereign creator of the universe. Now through in the word sovereign, it's technically redundant. Because to say God is creator is to say he is sovereign. But what's the word sovereign mean? It's a helpful clarification. Well, well so in a, in a kingdom, who's the sovereign? The king. The king. So who does the king's bidding? Everybody, <laughs> Everybody in, in that kingdom does the king's bidding. He's the sovereign ruler. No one's over him. We're saying here God is sovereign over creation, period. How far the stars are apart. Whose idea is that? This is God's idea. You can see it in verse 19. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? I'm not talking the universe yet. Just the circle we live on. Do you have any idea how big it is? And it's going to go through all these things and, and rain and cloud. And I love the, the poetry in verse 22. is beautiful. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? What's a storehouse of snow? Well, it's where the snow is kept. But what is it? It's in the imagery. Clouds. It's like this is beautiful energy, but you, you hear what God's saying. Job doesn't probably even understand how that works. You know, we I mean we have a fuller understanding scientifically of how many of these things work, but God is just gonna ask these series of questions. Then it gets it's gonna go from big scale, so he governs the world on the largest possible scale, but then uh it's gonna get real small. Check out verse uh, chapter thirty nine, verse one. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? I mean, we might, okay, like just a, a jump here. Um, I know when uh, my Nigerian dwarfs give birth, you know. They're going to be doing that shortly, by the way. Um, but what's God saying here? Come on. Come on. Not only do I know how big the earth is, where the sun and the moon are, how the, the stars and the sky. He, he mentioned the different uh, constellations back in 38, 30 through 33. He's seeing all these constellations, but then he narrows in and says, I even know when the baby goats are born, Job. I, I know when they don't make it. I know when they do. I know what rate their heart's beating. And you can only see what's in front of you, Job. I see it all. I see it at the same time. So not only does he govern the world on the largest scale, you can probably guess the next blank, he governs the world on the smallest possible scale. From top to bottom, he rules every bit of it. So therefore, his power is incomprehensible to Job. Job can't even begin to understand, nor can we, what it really even means to describe the power of God. Now, in 
theology, there's communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. What's fascinating to me is things like God's power is part of his communicable attributes, you know, because we can kind of get what power means, but it's, you know, compared to all the other attributes of God, all these incommunicable attributes of God, we just don't get it. He's so beyond us in every possible way. You know, did God tell us everything? No, and also he never will. Now, a lot of us have this false mentality. We're going to get to heaven. We're just, oh, we know everything God knows now. Uh, your brain would blow up. I'm sorry, that's just not how this works. You will never be infinite. You would have to be infinite to know everything God knows, period. Just for him to recount to you everything he had done would take an infinite amount of brain capacity that you will not have. So God's power is incomprehensible, and furthermore, his wisdom is unquestionable, which is what he's getting at here with Job. Because what has Job questioned? Are you ruling the universe the right way? It's a pretty bold accusation. It's just a question itself. Can you imagine actually walking into God's throne room and saying, I don't like the way you manage things down there. I got, I got a bone to pick with you. And this is... God looking down on Job like, you don't even speak a language that we can have this conversation in. Like, you just have no idea. He would have to condescend in so many ways that there's no way to explain this in Job's language. You ever have a really young child ask a very complicated question? Like when your four-year-old asks, why did God let Satan into the garden? You ever had that happen? You know, what, what do you do in that moment? Everybody's like, I don't know what should we do in that moment. <laughs> you, you panic. You really do panic, though, right? You go ask Brian. You go ask Brian. And then I panic. Okay? Because the, the fear in that moment is you know, for one, at best, you, you only kind of understand that question. And then having to convey an answer that's going to in any way satisfy the curiosity of a small child, you know that you've just been asked a hopelessly difficult question. Well... <laughs> Multiply that by infinity. And that's Job questioning God's ability to govern the world. There's just no way it could really even be answered. Because you would have to be as smart as God is to even understand. I know I say, I know Abby gets mad at me, and the boys do all the time. They ask me a question, I'm like, oh, it's a good question. You'll understand when you're older. I don't know. I just can't. I can't yet. There's too many things you don't know for me to even make sense of that question just yet. And I hate to give him a really cheesy answer, so I just I just try to, you know, deflect. I guess temporal temporal deflection. Um, just just wait till you're later, older. All right. So his power is unquestionable. And then the whole point of this whole section, those three chapters, is Job is not qualified to participate in the conversation. He just doesn't know about. It. You ever try to get into a political debate and real quickly you realize you don't have any idea what anybody's actually talking about? I've done that a few times. It just you know just confession at the moment. It's like, well, I think, and then you, they come back and like, I don't, I didn't know what. <laughs> I'm confused now. I, I thought it went down differently than that. Um, and that's, that's at best, that, that's a positive way of describing Job's scenario. Now, Job is going to respond. So we're in chapter 40. We're in verse three. So, so God ended a section by saying, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So he finishes his dialogue and he points to Job and says, all right, what's the answer? And this is Job's answer. Uh, Job answered the Lord and said, behold, 
I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So in other words, Job's saying what? Okay. Um, you can feel, I'm, I'm tiny. That's an interesting response. God gives him questions, and Job's answer is, I'm small. I'm, I'm tiny. He's, he's nothing compared to God's infinite. So Job, Job acknowledges his finite nature. Finite, just infinite without the end. Finite. What's it mean to be finite? Small. I mean, technically, the universe is finite, though. Right? It's measurable. You know, so that's what, when we say God cannot be seen, this is actually what we're talking about. God would have to be finite to be seeable. Yeah, yeah. And actually to be finite is to be comprehensible. You can be known. You can be understood. And that's why we will never in any sense. You know, as I always say when I do class, you know, I draw a circle and put God in. I'm like, technically forgive my theological heresy. Um, God's not in a circle. He, he can't. This is just for our cognitive Ability to have meaningful conversation, but he's not in a circle. There's no sense in this. But if there were a circle and we represented a dot, um, if that's how big the circle was, you wouldn't be able to see the dot that any of us are or that Job is. He's small. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm finite before God. Job acknowledges his limited wisdom before God. How shall I answer you? I don't have anything to contribute to this. He knows that now. He's He's... Walked into God's throne room in a sense, or God's throne room walked into his world. And he now has a full recognition that he should have shut up a long time ago. He didn't, though. And so instead, he promises humble silence. I'm just going to keep my mouth over my hand. Now, what, what's that say? Y'all know what I meant. Anybody other than James catch that? Yes. <laughs> but we were like every, everyone in the room. Do what? We weren't bad enough to say anything about it. Uh, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty bold. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Anyway, Job's Job's being humble in his response. And you notice it's only three verses long. Technically, it's not even that. It's technically only two. Um, so he he responds with. I'm small, I'm limited, I'm humble. But God keeps speaking. And this is actually very interesting what happens next. We're actually, we might have some disagreement too in the following pages, but we'll just, uh, we'll embrace it. And it'll be nothing like the tulip conversation <laughs> earlier this year, but, but there might be some disagreement nonetheless. We'll dive in either way. So then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so this is the second speech, dress for action like a man, similar to what he said in the other one. I will question you and make it, you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? So here's what God is fixing to do. It'll be more obvious as we, we work a little further. He's saying, Job, are you, are you anything like me? Or are, you, are you saying, Job, that my governance over all these things I created, Job, and I'm doing it wrong. You want to try? We're not talking about Bruce Almighty here or Evan Almighty. I didn't see the sequel because the first one was bad enough. 
But uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you, you want to try this? You, you want to step in my shoes for just a minute, Job? You, just, just hypothetically, let's try this out. So God sets up a hypothetical scenario where Job can pretend to be God. In verse 10, this is the hypothetical scenario. So adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Well, where's Job going to get that from? God. <laughs> Where'd God get his? He got it on his own. He didn't have to get it from somewhere else. Job, put on, put on your own majesty here. Go find some dignity. Go, go see what you can do. Conjure this up for yourself. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. What's, what's he getting at here? Where, where's Job going to get any of this? No. It's not going to get it. It's, it's, he's being facetious. This is hypothetical. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. So let, let's test that out. Do you want to express divine wrath? You want to see how easy that is to work out? Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Have any of you wanted to do that? I'll play God for a minute. And I'll tell you, if I was God, oh, I would get that person. Well, I just did something Job did, if I make a comment. God's like, yeah, you want to you give this a shot? You want to you pour out anger? You want to try to wrestle with the difficulties of creation? You want to try to herd this chaos by herding cats? You know, you want to try to do this? You want to grasp on the water? So let's see, Job will have to express divine anger and bring the wicked down. Now, what's really interesting is, as far as new information now, God's done talking. He's just going to give two examples of what Job couldn't handle um, within this hypothetical scenario. That's it, it's done. So there's not, not any more content. It's just, then we, we hear this final dialogue, God and Job, it's, it's not the speech anymore. And God is going to present... Two, and I'm going to call it mythological creatures. While Job is considering how to govern the universe, God will bring up, sorry, not T-O, T-W-O, two mythological creatures. You probably already know what I'm talking about. Can you name them for me? Behemoth and who? Leviathan. Both of those are the Greek word, I mean, sorry, Hebrew word for these scenarios. So God is going to set up and see, all right, Job, if you want to try to wrestle with the chaos that's in this world, well, how would you handle Behemoth and Leviathan? Okay, so if you've read commentaries, if you have a study Bible, you'll find that there's about a billion different options for what people claim these to be. Now, I grew up on some good answers in Genesis Ken Ham material. If you know that material, what, what are these two creatures in that material? Dinosaurs. Okay, in that material, these are dinosaurs. So, I, you know, out of context, I can buy that. In the context of Job, I just can't see that. Um, and if you talk about the behemoth, um, literally, that's the word for cattle. Technically, just this is the Hebrew word for cattle. Now it's being used in a clearly, you know, audacious maybe or bold, hyperbolic sort of way. Um, but the word itself is just a uh, cattle. 
And if you read the description, though, very quickly you'll see that uh, I've never met a cow. Anybody been on a cow? I mean, they can be a little terrifying, especially a bull. Um, but I've never had a cow that uh, acts quite like this. We know he, God made you. Um, he eats grass like an ox. All right, so an ox is technically a type of cow. Anybody know what an ox is? It's not its own species. It's like you take a bull, you castrate it, and you use it for pulling. It's an ox now. So it's, it's similar to an ox, which is technically a bull. Um, his strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. What's a cedar? Tree. A tree. Okay, maybe a baby tree? Or is this getting a little, uh, you know, grand? Yeah, and it's and it's for one, it, it's not it's not tiny. That's what, what we're getting at. Um, the sinews of his thigh are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him, where there where all the wild beasts. Play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh, for the shade of the lotus trees cover him, the willow of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Now, that's where you get the hippo. Is uh, this, this seems, to, well, is he hanging out in the water? It's, well, that was kind of, maybe? He's doing something here. Can can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Now, what's really interesting here is it's not a perfect description, but this does line up very well with a specific Canaanite deity that was a bull. And so this creature's like an ox. In fact, some of you, I don't know what all study Bibles in the room, some of you will have study Bibles that reference this. There's, there's debate over that. And I'll just say I, I feel pretty firmly and mostly because of the next part, that this is, he's referencing this mythological bull that in the Canaanite religion, Bel, the Lord, had to conquer this bull to gain authority over creation. And really, in Job's version of the narrative, is saying, no, I made that thing. So the point is, no, God's got sovereignty even over this mythological creature. But Job, you want to go try to, you want to go try to rob that bull? Y'all seen bull riding, right? Mm-hmm. You, that doesn't look easy. Imagine it being a mythological proportion um, bull. The answer is no. Job can't handle this thing. All right, so it does match a Canaanite mythological creature. If you land on the hippo, though, I'm not going to disown you as a friend. I'm just, I have a feeling that's not where the author of Job is going. I'm pretty sure this is referring to that mythological, mythological creature, mostly because of what's next, which is chapter 41, and it's just another beast. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Now, fish hook automatically suggests that this creature's where? In the sea. In the sea. He's in the water. Um, what's really interesting about this creature is this is not the only time this uh, word is used, and the word Leviathan itself is also basically the same word. There's a root thing going on there, but it's basically the same word as the word serpent. 
So when you think of a serpent, what do you think of? Snake. A snake. What else? Dragon. Interesting. Remember how we've talked about, and this is for the nerdy folks in the room, when the Old Testament was written, it was written in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew. The New Testament's written in what language? Hebrew. Why the change? Do you remember? Alexander the Great conquers the world, Hellenizes everything. What did they do to the Old Testament during that period of time? They translated it into Greek. Anybody want to take a stab at what the Greek version of the word Leviathan is? That's dragon. Well, you want me to show you it's dragon? Look down at verse 18. He sneezes, flashes, or sorry, his sneezings flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn, and out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. I don't know about you, but I've never met a creature in the wild that breathed fire. And if you're not 100% with me, Isaiah 27.1 explicitly calls a leviathan a dragon. So I don't know what you do with that <laughs> other than to say that leviathan is a Dragon. Okay. I know everybody's like, huh? Because of that, I think clearly, without any question, Leviathan's a dragon, mythological creature. Not just so everyone on the same page here. There are no dragons in this sense. Ever. We we all together on that? Alright, and if you think of ancient depictions of dragons, we think much more of a, you know, flying, fire breathing T Rex. Right, that's kind of our version of a dragon. Their version of a dragon is more of a slithering sea monster, snaky lizard monster thing. That, do you follow what I'm saying? It's that's their dragon. That's in fact, there's ancient depictions of both behemoth and leviathan across church history, both in Christian tradition and in um, Jewish tradition. And guess what? Two beasts are depicted: a mythological bull and the mythological dragon. So I don't have any doubt going through this scenario. So Leviathan lives in the sea, breathes fire, and is covered in scales. And then Isaiah confirms that Leviathan is a dragon. What I'm saying here is God is setting up a scenario where in Job's context, we know he's intimately familiar with the Canaanite deities because he already referenced one, um, Rahab, way, way earlier in the book. Rahab, not the harlot that let the, the spies in, completely different Rahab. This is Rahab the goddess and Canaanite religion. He's very familiar with Canaanite religion. He references it. He's not validating it. He's changing it. Because in those scenarios, their God had to conquer these creatures to become God. In this scenario, the Bible's saying that these these creatures at best are in God's toy box. He can come down and play with, he can play fetch with Leviathan. He, he, can, he can come over and get Behemoth to come lean down and just you know, scratches ear and he thumps his foot like a dog. I mean, God's just got no problem with this. But what would Job? You put Job against Behemoth or Leviathan. What's going to happen? This is the story of epic proportion about how Job's life ended. All right, this, this, he's not going to win this battle. But here, here's the here's what God has really set up. 
This is that last part under the section. If Job can't manage such simple creatures like these, how would he fare running the universe? Now, he's terrified of these mythological beasts. For one, that don't actually exist. But two, compared to what God's managing every single day, these aren't even blips on his radar. So in other words, what, what's God really hinting at with Job here? You don't have any idea. You, you are so lost. You don't, you don't have a clue. Now, as much as we wanted to answer the question, well, why did God let Job suffer? God's answer to Job, now we have the big picture. We know Job didn't deserve it. We know things like that. Job doesn't get that part as far as we know. What's God telling Job? What's, what's God's answer to Job's question? Job, I'm God. You need to let me do my thing. And that's the theodicy of Job. Remember that word theodicy? How do we defend God in light of evil in the world? And I said, we don't really care about the global theodicy. We, we really want to know why God did evil in our lives. And the book of Job is saying, now you just need to trust God with what he's doing. He's managing something outside of your scope of comprehension. He's got this. So let's see how Job responds to this conversation. Chapter 42, last chapter of the book. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So just to rephrase that, Job admits God is capable of running the universe perfectly. All right, God, you, you're right. You can run this thing. However you want to run it, that's how you're going to run it, and that's how it's going to be run, because you're sovereign, you're creator. There's nothing that's going to change that. Then he goes on to say, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God's question of him. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So Job admits he doesn't remotely understand God's ways. Not even close. Here and I will speak. I will question you and make it known, and you make it known to me. Again, he's quoting God. Verse 5. I have heard of you, <coughs> sorry, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what's new in Job's life now? Humility. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> His loyalty is even stronger. His loyalty is stronger, but why? What's happened? He has seen God. Now, we have to be careful. Like, we don't mean he's seen God in the infinite sense. But he has had a meaningful, legitimate interaction with the God of the universe. That's incredible. It's mind-blowing. It, it's a big deal. So Job is forever changed by seeing the glory of the Lord. It's interesting. The New Testament uses the exact same lingo to describe conversion in more than one place. That our eyes have been blinded by the devil, and we can't see. But what happens in Christ? Scott says this all the time. Or I hadn't heard him say it recently, but he says a lot in worship. Is uh, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. The next verse says, and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Peter says in Second Peter, he's talking about the scriptures, but he says we need to study the scripture until the sun rises and that light 
shines in our hearts. It's our eyes open. We see. And really the entire Christian experience is us just having that meeting with the Lord. As I, I've heard about you with my ear, but now I've seen you with my eye. And what's Job going to do with this new sight? Somebody said more loyal than he was before. Or just let's throw in the other word. He's going to trust the Lord now. And we'll see how he wraps it up. We're about there. And we're doing good on time. It says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. It's very fortunate for Job that God spoke to Eliphaz as well. Because what just happened? He just took Job's side. Imagine, that would be so nice. Like when you've been in a scenario we've been wrong, and God shows up and is like, I need to do everything right. But I do take your side, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, I would melt, you know, no matter which side you're on. I can't imagine at this point having to be Eliphaz, or Bildad, or Zophar for that matter. He says, my anger burns against you. And they've been preaching, if God's anger burns against you, what happens next? You suffer. So in their theological system, what did they just get told? Oh, it's on. It is on. But that's not how the story goes. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for your ser- for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For what you have spoken to me is not right, as my servant Job has. So what's God tell these guys to do? they got to go sacrifice some animals. Who's going to officiate the sacrifice? Job is. What does that make him? He's the priest. So these guys have been pointing the finger at Job for who knows how long. they got to go to Job, ask Job to ask God to forgive them. Wow. That's so humbling. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamanite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted whose prayer? Job's prayer. Oh, man, the irony in this whole scenario. So Job is vindicated by the Lord, and Job resumes his work as a priest. Now the last bit. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, whom they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money. It's funny to say a piece of money. It's not what we call it. But in their culture, a piece of money would have been a piece of gold, a piece of silver. So they give him a piece of money or a shekel, something like that, and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, he had also seven sons and three daughters, which is, what do you have before? Ten. Seven sons and three daughters. Seven sons and three daughters. It's exactly the same. Yeah, it's exactly that. So, And he called the name of the first one. We didn't get the names before. Um, Jimena, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance 
among the brothers, which is also a radical change from the culture. And after this, Job lived, so after this, Job lived, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job's, Job died an old man full of days. So second to last, Job's fortunes are restored. Why end the book this way, though, you think? Does this, some commentators say, well, I don't know why this ending's there. It kind of undermines the whole book. Because what was the whole point of the book of Job? What did Job do? He was faithful to the Lord in spite of suffering. But doesn't does it seem to mean that in the end God actually does bless the righteous and curse the wicked? It does seem that way. So were they right? They were missing something. Something we have in the New Testament very clearly that the Old Testament has kind of in a shadow. What's the difference? That's a big difference from the Old and New Testament. That's not where I'm going now. Someone said resurrection. We do know that in the end, we will reap what we sow. We will reap the reward that comes from being a follower of Christ. We do know that in the end, my Redeemer will live. And though this flesh perishes yet in my flesh, I will trust in the Lord because he will vindicate. This is what we have to look forward to. Now, we're not saying in the book of Job that it's going to happen on this side. It may be your lot in life from God himself that it not work out. But what we do know is it does work out in the end. It's never God's will in the short term to heal you. We know this. But it's always God's will in the long term to heal you, whatever the situation may be. This is the promise we have in God. Therefore, God will take care of his people. We can trust him in this. And that's Job. We can trust him. Even when he does evil, we can trust him. I missed one blank. Job is blank by the Lord. Vindicated. Vindicated. All right, 729. That's like, that's like really close. Any questions? Feel good? Job's fun? Or maybe not fun. <laughs> Poor choice of words. Job was enlightening. I had, I had a good time with Job. So I still don't know what's next. So if you have some uh, ideas or suggestions, please let me know what you got. Um, what, are we get, what are we doing next? I was just saying I have no idea. But if you have a topic, you, I'm glad you care. That's, that gets me pumped up. Yes. Okay. But uh, we won't meet next week, and we will meet the week after on a new topic to be determined. So, you got something, Judah? Well, we get to see God in heaven, or will we not? We will see God in heaven, but specifically we'll see Jesus in heaven, who does have a body that can be seen. Because he's still in the body he left in. So we can't see God either. Even in heaven, we won't see the true character of God. We'll, we'll see Jesus, and we'll have, we call them, to use a big word, we say theophanies. That's just ways God shows up. Like the Job, he showed up as a, a whirlwind. We don't know what it'll be like, but God will show up in some way. Good question. That's a really good question. Yes. All right. Well, any other? All right. Let's uh, pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for Job and his life, his story. 
I pray that it be encouraging to us. Help us to trust you in light of, in spite of everything that goes wrong in life, knowing that your plan ultimately is good and that you do in the end, in the resurrection, restore all things. God, we trust you. We pray that we would walk faithfully um, each day in obedience to you through the encouragement of the scriptures. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir,